Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, my fellow Believers, and welcome back to episode number 16 of Combat Bets on the Believe Network. I'm your host, Jason Barron, and thank you so much for joining me on another episode. We're going to be hitting all the big topics in MMA and boxing as it was a big weekend for the UFC with UFC 251 happening this past Saturday on July 11th. So first I'm going to recap UFC 251 and then I'll get into recapping the main event between Calvin Qatar and Dan Ige which happened this past Wednesday. So let's get into some UFC recaps and then move into some boxing topics. The first fight on the UFC 251 pay-per-view card was between Amanda Rebass and Paige Van Sant. It was at 125 pounds in the women's flyweight division. And Rebass put on a really great performance getting a first round submission via armbar against an overmatched opponent in Van Sant. It looks like this could be Van Sant's uh, last fight in the UFC as uh, in the press conference Dana White says yeah she should be looking at free agency so this could be the last of Paige Van Sant but Amanda Rebas uh, a Brazilian fighter is no doubt definitely a fighter to watch out for and someone that perhaps could give uh, Shevchenko Valentina Shevchenko the current champion at 125 pounds maybe some trouble but it was a great performance from Rebos, who was able to lock up an armbar as she uh, took Vincent to the ground and was clearly the better grappler as she adjusted her position accordingly while uh, Vincent tried uh, to defend but was unsuccessful, obviously. And uh, Rebas also has a very bubbly and happy personality. So not only is she a great fighter inside the octagon, but outside of it, she's very marketable and someone that uh, I want to see again. And I assume that most fight fans definitely want to see fight again. And since she didn't really have to work too hard to get her a win, a first round submission win after only two minutes and uh, 21 seconds into the round, why not get her again uh, fighting soon upcoming? So we'll see if uh, Dana White can schedule Amanda Rebus in another fight soon because uh, she's definitely a fan favorite and uh, could be getting a title shot against Shevchenko if she continues to put on similar performances to the ones she's been putting on so far in the UFC. She's undefeated in the UFC and surely may put on a statement win against an overmatched opponent in Vincent and took care of her accordingly as uh, she should have having the jiu-jitsu game that she does and the striking game. It's clear that Rebus is a very well-rounded fighter and I'm definitely excited to see her in her next fight. And I wish Paige Vincent nothing but the best but perhaps she's just overmatched in the UFC and maybe we'll be fighting in her lower promotion or just do some modeling on Instagram as she says she makes more money on Instagram than she does in fighting. So we'll see where she goes from here and for Rebus maybe a title shot could be coming up for her in uh, the not too distant future. I think she still needs a couple more fights in order to get ready for Shevchenko but she's definitely a contender to watch out for in the 125 pound uh, women's division.
at flyweight. And then moving on to the next fight on this uh, pay-per-view card, we had Jessica Andrade taking on Rose Namajunas. It was actually a rematch from their past fight in which Andrade won the title from Namajunas by slamming her to the ground. A beautiful slam and it landed right on Namajunas' head and that was the end of the fight. But uh, this fight played out quite differently than their first fight. And looking at uh, the striking stats, it was actually very close when you look at the stats as uh, Nami Yunus landed 82 out of 235 total strikes, while Andrade landed 79 out of 213 total strikes. So only three strikes more for Nami Yunus in a three-round fight. I thought it was a very close fight. I thought Andrade won the last round, the third round, but Nami Yunus won the first two rounds. And the judges' scorecards bore that out, with Rose Nami Yunus winning by split decision. The three judges' scorecards were uh, 29-28 for Andrade, and then 29-28 and 29-28 for Nami Yunus. So clearly a very close fight. But I thought that Rose got off to a really good start. She was able to use her height and reach advantage to keep Andrade on the outside and outstrike her with really good boxing skills. And Andrade uh, really was able to push the pace in the third round and actually was able to hurt Rose Namajunas. And you could see post-fight the damage on uh, Rose's face and uh, Andrade didn't really wear that damage as much. So that showed me that Andrade was indeed landing the more powerful punches. And that's kind of what you see with uh, these fighters that are very compact and short they can generate a lot of power because they're really built with all muscle whereas a fighter like Rose Namajunas is more of a flowing striker and maybe doesn't throw with the same power as a fighter like uh, Andrade does and if Andrade had gotten off to a quicker start she could have won the decision but because she clearly lost the first two rounds it was going to be very hard for her to uh, come back and win the fight but give her credit she came out really strong in the third round really was able to get on the inside a lot more and uh, land some damage on Nama Yunus so a very entertaining fight uh, for the women's division and this could indeed be a title eliminator and uh, perhaps the next opponent for Zhang Wei Li the current champ at 115 pounds in uh, the women's strawweight division. However, I still think that Zhang Wei Li is better than both Nami Yunus and Andrade. She's already beaten Andrade, and uh, Nami Yunus, I think, would also lose to Zhang Wei Li. I just think that Wei Li has great power, great stamina, and as you saw in her fight against uh, Joanna Uresic, an absolutely classic women's MMA fight, for my money, the best women's MMA fight in the history of the UFC was between Zhang Wei Li and Joanna Uresic. If you haven't seen that fight, you definitely got to go back and check it out. Definitely a contender for one of the fights of the year. And uh, I just think, as I was saying earlier, that Zhang Wei Li has the better stamina and the better power in a matchup against Rose Namajunas. But Rose showed great fundamentals, great boxing, and if she's able to keep Wei Li on the outside, she has a chance of recapturing her 115 pound uh, strawweight title but as for now I just don't see it and Rose really didn't put on an impressive enough performance for me to be convinced that she could indeed uh, dethrone the champion and uh, this was mainly a stand-up battle and when you look at the ground control time uh, Andrade was one of three on her takedown attempts and she 
could only hold uh, Rose down for 29 seconds. So clearly more of a stand-up battle, which is obviously going to suit Namajunas' strength better than Andrade's. And this was much different from their first fight, where Andrade was able to get some takedowns on Rose and actually slam her down right on her head to end the fight. Uh, if you remember, it was quite a vicious knockout that Andrade got. And uh, Rose Namajunas made the adjustments necessary to not fall to the same fate once again against the very powerful uh, Andrade and she was able to come out with a big decision win and the main difference in this fight and perhaps the main reason that Nami Yunus won was the number of head strikes she landed on Andrade. When you look at the head strikes uh, Nami Yunus was able to land 63 out of 209 total head strikes whereas uh, Andrade only landed 31 out of 134 total strikes so this tells me that Rose was able to use her length and her height to really stay out of the way of Andrade's attacks and really get the better of her over the course of uh, three rounds. Now moving on from that fight and into the next fight on uh, the UFC 251 pay-per-view card, we had a fight for the bantamweight title at 135 pounds between Peter Yan and Jose Aldo. As I predicted, I thought Jan would get it done in the later rounds and score a knockout win over the legend Jose Aldo. It definitely looks like Aldo's best days are behind him as he's coming off some tough, tough losses. Aldo really hasn't been the same fighter since he lost to Conor McGregor by knockout in the first round, and that was all the way back in December of 2015 only 13 seconds into their fight and then since then he got a unanimous decision win over Frankie Edgar two knockout losses to Max Holloway uh, a win over a TKO win over Jeremy Stevens and another TKO win over Renato Mo Moicano maybe made you think that Aldo could get back to his winning ways but then he follows that up with a unanimous decision loss to the current champion at 145 pounds, Alexander Volkanovsky. And then he loses a close, close fight against Marlon Moras at his debut at Bantamweight at 135 pounds. And then most recently, he uses to the current Bantamweight champion, uh, Peter Yan, uh, via fifth round TKO and... Uh, this could be really the end of the line for Aldo. I don't want to see him continue to take these beatings. Aldo is an absolute legend in the sport, one of the best featherweights of all time. And he doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. He's already done all he can. He tried his best to continue to compete at 145 pounds. When that didn't work, he figured he'd go down to 135 pounds and try to win a title there. That didn't work out as Peter Jan just blasted through him in the later rounds. And uh, we'll see where Aldo goes from here. But as for Peter Jan, there's no doubt that the next guy he should be facing should be Aljamain Sterling at 135 pounds for Peter Jan's uh, title at bantamweight. So we'll see if Sterling and Jan indeed do end up fighting against each other. If we remember correctly, uh, Aljamain Sterling looked absolutely terrific in his fight against a very tough opponent in uh, Corey Sandhagen, he was able to blast through him and get a, a very uh, nice submission win in the first round to clearly show he's definitely next in line to fight for the title at bantamweight. And 
with Jan's big knockout win over Jose Aldo, he's become the second Russian UFC champion. Uh, the first is obviously Khabib Nurmagomedov, and now Russia can claim a second champion in uh, Peter Jan. And let's look at the stats for this fight. Jan landed 258 out of 376 total strikes, whereas Aldo only landed 83 out of 157 total strikes and uh, Jan landed 150 total strikes to the head whereas Aldo only landed 38 strikes to the head and uh, the body shots were uh, quite similar to each other. Jan landed 35 body shots whereas Aldo landed 28 body shots and Aldo really should have been um, attacking the legs of Jan more as you could see that Jan was affected by Aldo's very powerful leg kicks. Aldo was able to land only 17 leg kicks and Jan landed 9. And then you look at the control time, uh, Jan was able to take Aldo down and had 4 minutes and 50 seconds of ground control time. And uh, I thought Aldo looked really good early on. He was attacking the body of Jan, really pushing forward, using some dirty boxing to get on the inside and land some good shots on Peter Jan. But over the course of the fight... That tough weight cut that Aldo had to endure to get down to 135 pounds was going to show itself in the later rounds, in the 4th and 5th rounds. And that's why they call it the championship rounds. It's because in a normal 3-round fight, you don't really have to push yourself as much. But those last 2 rounds really separate the champions from the challengers. And that's what we saw in the last two rounds of this fight as Jan got stronger and stronger while Aldo faded more and more. And uh, it ended up with Jan having an absolutely dominant fifth round. He took Aldo down, was able to land a flurry of punches, and I thought it took the referee way too long to stop this fight. It was clear that Aldo didn't have any fight left in him, yet he let Aldo take a beating for a very long time, and the fight didn't end until 3 minutes and 24 seconds into the fifth round. I thought it could have been stopped at least a minute sooner than that, and Aldo really doesn't deserve that type of treatment as he is such a legend in the sport and he should be treated with the utmost respect whenever he gets into the octagon. And unfortunately, he bit off a little more than he could chew against the very powerful Peter Jan, who's very big for 135 pounds. And he's a very powerful striker, both with his legs and with his punches. And landing 150 total head strikes on Jose Aldo just shows that he never stops pushing forward, never stops coming. And he's also very durable as he did take some punishment from Jose Aldo but didn't really seem to be affected by it too much. He said he had to switch stances, I believe, to Southpaw because the leg kicks of Aldo were bothering him. So that shows you that Peter Jan can adjust mid-fight to what's going on and uh, continue to push forward and be that very powerful striker that I think is going to be very hard to beat at 135 pounds. Hopefully Henry Cejudo comes back out of retirement to challenge Peter Jan at 135 pounds. But I think Aljamain Sterling, the most likely next opponent for Peter Jan, is not built with that same powerful, compact, muscly base. He's more of a lengthy fighter 
that uh, really relies on his wrestling and his quick movements to get wins. And I think Peter Jan might be able to somewhat mitigate the strengths of Aljamain Sterling, but I'm definitely excited to see that fight if indeed it does come to fruition. So it was a very impressive performance from Peter Jan, something I pretty much expected from him. He's the younger fighter, the hungrier fighter. He's never been champion before, and he definitely showed that he's worthy of that title. And I don't think he's going to be losing it anytime soon. We'll see uh, what the next matchups are for him at 135 pounds. Besides him most likely taking on Aljamain Sterling, I'd also love to see him take on Marlon Moraes, the guy that got a split decision win over Jose Aldo. I think that would be a very close fight. And it seems like Jan doesn't really have too many weaknesses in his fight game. He's a very powerful striker. And it seems like he can take guys down if he wants to with his wrestling. But most of the time, he likes to keep it a stand-up battle, it seems like. And he usually has the advantage, especially at bantamweight, because he's throwing uh, strikes with such ferocity and such power that you usually don't see at the bantamweight division. And that's often why he's able to get wins. And uh, it's obviously why he's become champion. And for me, Jose Aldo didn't even deserve this title shot. I mean, he lost his bantamweight debut. Some people thought Aldo won that fight against Moraes, and perhaps that's why he got the title shot. But for me, Aldo didn't deserve a title shot, and really the only reason he did end up getting uh, this big opportunity was because of the name recognition and because Aldo is such a legend in the sport. Unfortunately, it wasn't his night. So for Peter Jan, I'd love to see him take on either Aljamain Sterling or Marlon Moraes next. And for Jose Aldo, perhaps he should just retire because I really don't want to see him continue to take these beatings. The next fight on the UFC 251 pay-per-view card was between the current champion at featherweight at 145 pounds, Alexander Volkanovsky, taking on Max Holloway in a rematch from uh, their first fight where Volkanovski won the title from Holloway by unanimous decision. However, their second fight was closer as it was a split decision win for Volkanovski. The judges had it 48-47 and 48-47 for Volkanovski and one judge had it 48-47 for Holloway. So it was a very close fight. I can definitely see the argument where some people say that Holloway won three rounds to two, and then the other argument that Volkanovski won three rounds to two. In my opinion, I did think that Volkanovski did win this fight, but if this was only a three-round fight, I definitely think that Holloway gets the decision because he clearly won the first two rounds. That third round is a little iffy, and I even know that some people think that Holloway won the fifth round. But uh, that's why they call it the championship rounds. Uh, Because, as I said, if this was a three-round fight, clearly Holloway wins the decision. But because this is a five-round championship fight, that's when uh, the champions really show themselves in the fourth and fifth round. And then, as I said earlier, the challengers tend to fade away and not be as strong in those later rounds. So you can really tell that in uh, the UFC that stamina is a very key factor, especially in these longer fights that go the full five rounds. And early on in the fight, I thought Holloway was getting the better of him. He was able to use his height and reach advantages to stay on the outside. And he actually dropped 
uh, Volkanovski twice, once with a head kick and another time with a beautiful two-punch combination that put Volkanovski down. Volkanovski wasn't seriously hurt, but Holloway was clearly winning those rounds, and with those two knockdowns, I thought that perhaps uh, it could swing the decision in Holloway's favor. However, that didn't happen, and Holloway once again was on the losing end of a very close fight. But I think ultimately what won this fight for Volkanovski was that he's the more powerful striker, and that's often what you see in these fighters that are very compact and small and built with all muscles versus someone like Holloway that's a taller, lengthier fighter that's very thin, so he's not going to be able to generate quite enough of the power that Volkanovski can generate because of his short and compact frame. And a big factor for why Volkanovski won the first fight against Holloway is because he utilized leg kicks beautifully to really beat up the legs of Holloway, and that was no different in their second fight. As Volkanovski went to the legs of Holloway and uh, mixed it up with some nice boxing on the inside as he was able to land some pretty decent punches on Holloway. Nothing too serious, but was landing scoring shots on Holloway that clearly influenced the judges and gave the split decision win to the current champion, uh, Alexander Volkanovsky. And looking at the fight stats for this fight, Volkanovsky landed 139 out of 275 total strikes, where Holloway only landed 111 out of 277 total strikes. So they basically threw the same number of strikes with Holloway throwing only two more strikes in a five-round fight than Volkanovski. However, Volkanovski was the more accurate striker, landing uh, a few more strikes than his opponent, Holloway. And then you look at the strikes to the head. Uh, Volkanovski landed 64 head strikes, whereas Holloway only landed 44. So this shows me that Volkanovski had the better defense in this fight, and that's how I thought it would play out, because in their first fight, you could see that Volkanovski is a very slick fighter and very hard to hit, and even though Holloway was getting his timing down in the first two rounds, I thought Volkanovski adjusted very well and started to show his defensive prowess and what makes uh, Volkanovski such a hard fighter to hit. And then you look at the leg strikes, Volkanovski once again uh, dominated in the leg strikes, he landed 67 total strikes to the legs of Holloway, whereas Holloway only landed 31 uh, leg strikes to Volkanovski. And perhaps something else that cemented the win for Volkanovski was his takedowns. Volkanovski was 3 of 9 on his takedown attempts and had a minute and 26 seconds of uh, ground control time on Holloway. Holloway didn't attempt any takedowns and only fought a stand-up uh, battle against Volkanovski. Unfortunately, uh, Holloway was on the wrong end of this decision. I could definitely see the argument for uh, Holloway winning, but Volkanovski was the more powerful striker, and along with his takedowns, I think that really uh, helped him in the eyes of the judges get this big win over the former featherweight champion in Max Holloway a fighter that a lot of people were picking to beat uh, Volkanovski in the rematch. I didn't think that Holloway could do it. 
After the beating that Holloway took against Dustin Poirier when he moved up to 155 pounds, I don't think that Holloway has been the same fighter since the Dustin Poirier fight, and it showed as he only got a unanimous decision win over Frankie Edgar. He should have been able to put Edgar away before the final bell, but he was unable to, and then he follows up that decision win over Frankie Edgar with two tough decision losses back-to-back to Alexander Volkanovsky. So it'll be interesting to see where he goes from here. But the main reasons that Volkanovsky did end up getting the decision over Holloway was because he was able to outstrike Holloway both to the head and to the legs. Uh, Holloway actually landed a lot to the body of Volkanovsky. He landed 27 total body shots, whereas Volkanovsky only landed 6 on Holloway. So you could see that Holloway was trying to mix up his striking and really use his reach uh, in order to overwhelm Volkanovski. But as I said earlier, I think uh, Alexander Volkanovski has some of the best uh, defensive fundamentals in all of the UFC. And he's a very slick fighter in there, very hard to hit. And he's a very powerful striker with a compact short frame. And that's ultimately uh, why he edged out this fight. And for Max Holloway, I can definitely see the argument of a third fight between him and Volkanovski, but I don't know if that's necessarily going to happen next, but it maybe it could. But for Holloway, I'd like to see him take on Calvin Qatar next, another uh, great uh, fighter at 145 pounds. He looked very impressive in his last fight against Dan Ige. I'll be uh, getting into that fight a little later. And besides Calvin Qatar as a potential next opponent for Max Holloway, I'd also love to see him take on Yair Rodriguez. Rodriguez is one of the most exciting fighters in the UFC, throwing a lot of unorthodox legs and kicks and a lot of movement in there. His fight against the Korean zombie Chan Sung Joon uh, was one of the greatest fights I've ever seen in the UFC, a very exciting fight. Yair Rodriguez won that fight with one of the most unorthodox strikes I've ever seen to finish a fight. A back elbow, he bent down and then uh, put his elbow up as uh, the Korean zombie was leaning in and was able to get the knockout, I believe in the last seconds of the fight. A very exciting fight. So either uh, a matchup against Calvin Qatar or Yair Rodriguez would be uh, some exciting fights that I'd love to see Hallway get matched up against. And as for Alexander Volkanovsky, there's really two fighters that I could see challenging him for his 145-pound featherweight title. And the first one is a Russian fighter, Zabit Magomed Sharipov. And Zabit is undefeated in the UFC. He's beaten... Uh, most recently, Calvin Qatar by unanimous decision, the guy that a lot of people are talking about as potentially challenging Volkanovski for the title. However, if Sabit already beat him, I think he definitely deserves that next title shot. We'll see if uh, that fight does indeed happen. And before beating Calvin Qatar by unanimous decision, Zabit also beat Jeremy Stevens by unanimous decision. He beat Brandon Davis by submission Sulov stretch. And then previous to that, he beat Kyle Bochenek uh, by unanimous decision. So clearly a very skilled fighter is a beat, uh, a great wrestler as these uh, Russian fighters tend to be. And I think a matchup against Volkanovsky is definitely warranted 
with his recent wins and his uh most recent win against Kam Qatar came all the way back in um November of 2019 so it's definitely time for Sabit to get back in the octagon and if he doesn't get that title shot next then I definitely would love to see him get a matchup against another featherweight contender maybe a Brian Ortega maybe Yair Rodriguez or the Korean Zombie and if Sabit can get through uh, his next fight then he definitely deserves uh, the title shot against Volkanovski next. However that's not the big money fight to make at 145 pounds. Guess what is though? Conor McGregor challenging Alexander Volkanovsky at 145 pounds for his featherweight title. McGregor is still one of the biggest stars in the UFC, one of the most exciting fighters, and he looked absolutely great in his last fight against Donald Cerrone. And I don't think that McGregor could beat the champion at 155 pounds in Khabib Nurmagomedov or the champion at 170 pounds in Kamara Usman. So I think that McGregor's most uh, likely opponent and his most likely path to victory would be against Alexander Volkanovsky at 145 pounds. I think that's the only champion that he has a chance of beating. So maybe they do indeed make that fight. Uh, I think it would be a big money fight for Volkanovsky and McGregor to get it on. And McGregor has previously uh, been the featherweight champion after he knocked out Jose Aldo. So he definitely can make the 145-pound weight limit. I don't know if he necessarily wants to take that fight. But I see uh, that fight as the most realistic chance of McGregor once again being a UFC champion. So for me, the two fights to make for Alexander Volkanovsky next would be either against the Russian Zabit Magomed Sharipov, or if not that fight, then the big money fight against Conor McGregor. And as for Holloway, as I said previously, I'd love to see him either take on Calvin Qatar or Yair Rodriguez next. Moving on from that fight and on to the main event, at UFC 251, it was for the welterweight title at 170 pounds between the Nigerian champion Kamara Usman and the challenger on six days notice, Jorge Masvidal. And looking at the fight stats for this fight, it really was utter domination for Kamara Usman. He landed 263 out of 341 total strikes whereas Masvidal only landed 88 out of 157 total strikes. That's just not going to get it done. And then you look at the control time. Usman was 5 of 16 on his takedown attempts, and he had 16 minutes and 38 seconds of ground control time. Really utter domination. And he really didn't let Masvidal get going in any meaningful way. He really made this a grappling match against the very talented striker in Masvidal. And the judges uh, really saw the fight for Usman as they scored it 49-46, 50-45, and 50-45 for the winner by unanimous decision. And still the champion at welterweight in Kamara Usman. And uh, for Masvidal, he really didn't have any answers for the wrestling of Usman. He was able to stuff some takedowns. But with such a relentless grappler like Usman, it's going to be hard for uh, Masvidal to keep him off of him for the full five rounds. And that's indeed what happened. 
As Masvidal's stamina was clearly hindered because he took the fight on such short notice and that 20 pound weight cut you could really see affecting him in the later rounds as he just didn't have the stamina to really push Usman and make this a different kind of fight other than a grappling match in which Usman really dominated. He was able to push Masvidal up against the cage and use shoulder strikes and foot stomps to really mitigate anything that Masvidal could do and really tire him out and make this a fight where Usman could play to his strengths and that's indeed what happened. And even though Masvidal didn't really get beat up, he was definitely dominated and it definitely showed that Usman is a very uh, worthy champion at 170 pounds and unfortunately the fight that would have been more competitive against a better wrestler in Gilbert Burns didn't end up happening as a Masvidal stepped in to save the main event but it was really a very boring fight and Usman was able to really just control him and really make this the fight that he wanted to make which was a grappling match and Masvidal actually did get off to a pretty decent start in the first round he was able to outstrike Usman and land some nice boxing on him and actually Usman ended up with a broken nose after the fight because I saw the medical suspensions uh, for the two fighters and Masvidal suffered a laceration on his forehead but it shows the power that Masvidal has the fact that he was able to break the nose of Usman and even though that didn't end up really mattering over the course of the fight it shows that maybe if they do have a rematch and Masvidal is more prepared for the wrestling of Usman he might have somewhat of a chance of springing the upset, but the dominant performance by Usman and the superior wrestling that he has just shows me that uh, this is a champion that's going to be very hard to beat. And it seems like Usman's striking is getting better in each and every fight. So for Usman, it was another dominant fight and another dominant win for uh, the very impressive champion. And the next fight that I would love to see Kamara Usman take on would be against Gilbert Burns. And that fight I actually thought was going to be more competitive. However, it got cancelled because unfortunately Burns tested positive for the coronavirus. However, I do indeed think that is uh, the next challenge for Usman to take on. I think that Burns can somewhat match Usman in terms of his wrestling in ways that Masvidal really can't and that's why I think it would be a more competitive fight and then for Masvidal I think the next opponent for him could be any number of welterweight contenders from Colby Covington to Leon Edwards to Tyron Woodley so we'll see uh, who Masvidal does indeed take on next or perhaps a big money fight against Conor McGregor for Masvidal so we'll see uh, where he goes from here uh, Masvidal said post-fight that the match he wants next is an immediate rematch against Kamara Usman. I really don't think he deserves a rematch against Kamara Usman, just judging by how thoroughly dominated he was in that fight and how he didn't look like he had any stamina to really push the pace and try to overtake Kamara Usman in the later rounds. And that's going to be one of Usman's main strengths against any of the fighters that he realistically is going to face in the near future is that Usman just seemingly has a gas tank that uh, allows him not to get tired. He didn't seem tired at any point during the fight. And it seems like Usman has really great stamina and it's going to be very hard for uh, Usman to lose his welterweight title but I think a matchup against Gilbert Burns would be a very competitive fight.
and maybe Burns could indeed spring the upset. But for Usman, right now, he's still the champion at 170 pounds. He definitely made a statement against a fighter that a lot of people were picking to spring the upset. I, however, had Usman winning by unanimous decision, and that's exactly what happened. I didn't think he'd be able to finish Masvidal just because Masvidal is such a great striker, and I thought that if uh, the match did end up going to the ground, that uh, Usman clearly had the advantage there, and that's exactly what happened. So we'll see where these two fighters go from here. Definitely some interesting matchups for them in the future. And while Masvidal is definitely a fan favorite, Usman is a very dominant champion. He might not be the most exciting fighter, the most fan friendly, but Usman does what he needs to do to continue to secure wins, so I can't really fault him for that. He plays to his strengths and is able to execute his game plan beautifully against most fighters. And it's going to be very difficult for someone to dethrone Kamara Usman. And another potential matchup I was hearing that perhaps could happen uh, would be against George St. Pierre. I don't know if St. Pierre is going to come out of retirement to take on Kamara Usman, but that would no doubt be a big money fight. Definitely a bigger money fight than the fight against Gilbert Burns. So we'll see where uh, the welterweight division goes from here. But for now, Kamara Usman remains a very dominant champion, and I don't see him losing his title anytime soon. So that will conclude my coverage of uh, UFC 251, Usman vs. Masvidal. Next, I'll be recapping. What's the number one sign of a bad home security system? A home security system that's so complicated you never use it. That's exactly the type of system Simply Safe has spent a decade fighting against. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24/7. Order online, open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. It's that simple. Head to simplysafe.com slash team and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com slash team. It feels good to fear less. UFC Fight Night Qatar vs. Ige. So let's get into that. Now before I get into the main card of uh, UFC Fight Night Qatar vs. Ige, I just want to shout out one fighter that looked very, very impressive to me, and that was Kazmat Shemaev, a fighter from Sweden. Uh, he's undefeated 7-0, and this was his debut in the UFC. He was taking on an Irish fighter in John Phillips. Phillips was clearly overmatched in uh, this fight, and it was very impressive performance from Shemaev. One of the most dominant performances I've ever seen in a fight. And you look at the fight stats for this fight and it really bears that out. And Shemaev ended up winning the fight by a DRSA choke in uh, the second round, only a minute and 12 seconds into that second round. And you look at the fight stats for this fight, absolutely domination from Shemaev. And this fight was at 185 pounds. However, Shemaev said post-fight that he can also fight at 170 pounds. So we'll see where indeed he does end up fighting at. Uh, but as I said, uh, very dominant performance. 
Phillips only landed two out of three total strikes. That's it. Two out of three total strikes. That's right. That's not a misread. That's crazy. In a fight that lasted two rounds, the guy only landed two out of three total strikes. Absolute domination. And then Shemaev landed 124 out of 140 total strikes. And then you look at the ground control time. Shemaev had five minutes and 54 seconds of ground control time. And he was two of two on his takedown attempts. And what really impressed me about Shemaev was how dominant he was. He was able to really control Phillips on the ground and really able to read his movements, trap his legs, so uh, Phillips couldn't get back up to his feet. It reminded me somewhat of the wrestling that Khabib Nurmagomedov employs against his opponents. I'm not saying that Shemaev is quite at that level of Khabib in terms of wrestling, but it looked very similar in terms of their fighting styles. And I definitely like to see Shemaev matched up against better opponents in the future, but it's clear that Shemaev has absolutely elite wrestling and it's going to be very hard for someone to beat him. And I don't think it's long before we see Shemaev getting a title shot. He really impressed me with his absolute domination of Phillips in the wrestling department. And not only was he wrestling Phillips very well, but he was also throwing a lot of ground and pound, throwing a lot of strikes in order to set up his eventual submission in the second round. So I'd definitely love to see uh, Shemaev get better opponents in the future. And soon enough, I think he's going to indeed get a title shot. I don't know if that's going to be at 170 pounds against perhaps Kamara Usman or at 185 pounds against Israel Adesanya. But there's no doubt that Shemaev is a very impressive prospect and I'm definitely excited to see his next fight. And the next fight that I'm going to recap will be between uh, Jimmy Rivera and Cody Stamen. This was quite a bit step up in competition for Stamen at uh, featherweight at 145 pounds and he wasn't quite able to get the win over Rivera and Stamen recently suffered a unimaginable loss losing his younger brother who they said died in his sleep. I can't imagine fighting after that loss and fortunately in his other fight he was able to get the win over Brian Keller he wasn't quite able to put on the same performance against Jimmy Rivera, a very talented featherweight. But before I get into more fight analysis, I wanted to single out the tattoo that I saw on uh, Stamen's chest. And I am part Greek and the tattoo was written in Greek. However, I'm not that knowledgeable in its meaning. So I'm going to go ahead and bring on my brother Lucas, who is actually fluent in Greek and much more well-versed in all things uh, gr relating to the Greek culture. So without further ado, here's my brother Lucas Barron to give you uh, some more background on Stamen's tattoo. And I believe it's a new tattoo because I don't remember seeing that specific tattoo in his fight against uh, Brian Keller. So without further ado, here's my brother. Hello Lucas, thank you so much for joining me on Combat Bets. And uh, I just wanted to invite you on to give uh, my listeners a little background on uh, Corey Stamen's tattoo. So uh, go ahead, please. Hello, Jason, and hello, uh, Bleavers. Yes, or Bleavers. Indeed. Um, 
yes, Jason, your host, was watching the game, and we remarked on uh, on what's the player's what's the the pugilist's name? Uh, Cody Stamen. Cody Stamen's shoulder blade, which bears a Greek inscription. Uh, I was amazed. It says "Molon lave." Uh, a very famous and important Greek phrase, which comes from um, the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, fought in the year 480 BC. Do you know anything about the Battle of Thermopylae? Not that much. Not as much as you. It was a very, um, uh, it was a, a very significant event. It was during the Second Persian War when King Xerxes was invading Greece with an army of almost three million men uh, from the various nations of his empire, according to Herodotus. And um, the Persians landed at the narrow pass at Thermopylae um, with the intention of, uh, of, uh, of conquering all of Greece. Uh, and they were stopped at the pass by Leonidas and his 300 Spartans. Three million against 300. Pretty long odds, right? Yeah, pretty crazy story, right? And uh, Xerxes is said to have uh, said to the, to the Spartans, lay down your weapons, uh, to which the Spartans responded, uh, molon lave, come and get them. So it's a, a classic expression of laconic defiance. And that's what uh, Stamen had on his shoulder blade, right? Molon lave. Molon lave. And then he said, uh, we, we shall blot out the sun with our arrows, uh, to which he answered, all the better, we'll fight in the shade. Right, so uh, some uh, quite the fitting tattoo, I would think, for a fighter as well. Did, did he win the fight? Unfortunately, he wasn't able to get the win over Rivera, but he showed himself to be a talented wrestler as he was able to take him down throughout the fight. Oh, so the tattoo is right, so Rivera did come and take it. Indeed, Rivera ended up did coming, yes, and taking it. <laughs> Good. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me, Lucas. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed that brief Greek history lesson of the Battle of Thermopylae. Thank you so much for listening, and thank my brother Lucas for joining me on the podcast. Now moving back into some fight analysis between Jimmy Rivera and Cody Stamen. Rivera landed 90 out of 134 total strikes, whereas Stamen only landed 62 out of 108 total strikes. And then you look at the control time, Stamen was able to take Rivera down once during the fight, and he was able to have 4 minutes and 25 seconds of ground control time. Rivera landed two takedowns on uh, Stamen and had a minute and 59 seconds of ground control time. So some of this fight was fought on the mat and uh, Stamen tried desperately to take Rivera down because he was really getting beat up on the feet and that bore out in the stats as um, Rivera outlanded him by about 30 strikes. So, a decent performance against Rivera, against a fighter that he should beat in Stamen. And the three judges had it for Rivera, 29-28, 30-27, and 30-27 for the winner by unanimous decision. And even though Stamen was somewhat able to wrestle Rivera, 
the striking accuracy of Rivera ended up being too much for him. I mean, landing 90 out of 134 total strikes shows a really accurate striking for Rivera, and he was able to land 19 strikes to the leg, 13 strikes to the body, and 16 to the head. So you could tell that uh, Rivera was really mixing things up, and he landed 48 significant strikes. So a nice performance from Rivera. Maybe if he got a knockout win, it would have been all the more impressive. But nonetheless, um, a very impressive performance for Rivera and for Stamen. I absolutely love his tattoo. Molon Lave. Come and take it. Uh, unfortunately, he wasn't able to get the win. But both these fighters are worth keeping an eye on in the featherweight division. Moving on to the main event, we had Calvin Qatar taking on Dan Ige. Qatar won the fight by unanimous decision 48-47, 49-46, and 49-46. It was a pretty competitive fight, but Qatar ended up getting the better of Ige because of his reach and uh, height advantage over the smaller Ige. He was really able to use his jab with great effectiveness Qatar has one of the best jabs in all of the UFC, and he was really able to keep Ige on the outside with that powerful punch and mix in some nice boxing to really uh, hurt Ige and really beat him up. As you could see, Ige had a big uh, swollen eye, and he really didn't look that good at the end of the fight. He took a lot of damage, and uh, the fight stats bore that out as uh, Qatar landed 107 total strikes and he landed 70 of those to the head of Ige and he was one of one on his takedown attempts and had a minute of and six seconds of ground control time on Ige. Ige landed 87 total strikes but only 37 of those were to the head and he tried to take Qatar down nine times. He was 0 of 9 on his takedown attempts. So not only was Qatar outlanding him on the feet, but on the ground, uh, he showed great takedown defense as Ige was unable to get this fight to the mat, where uh, obviously he would have much preferred it to be. But Qatar showed great striking ability, using his size, using his reach to really make Ige fight a tough fight. And I thought Ige actually won the second round, and it looked like he might have broke Qatar's nose there as Qatar was really pawing at it. But uh, despite that, Qatar was able to overcome perhaps a compromised nose and continue to push forward and use his jab to really lead him and find his distance against the smaller Ige. And he used uh, great boxing fundamentals. And he was actually able uh, to land a lot of shots to the head of Ige. And he also landed 19 shots to the body and 16 to the legs of Ige. So mixing it up a little there from Qatar. It seems like Qatar is getting better and better in each of his fights. And uh, he might not be ready for a title shot just yet against Alexander Volkanovsky. But as I said previously, I'd love to see Qatar take on perhaps Max Holloway, maybe the Korean Zombie or Yair Rodriguez in his next fight. All those would be great matchups for Qatar and for Dan Ige. He's still a very promising fighter and I think he's going to continue to improve, uh, especially after fighting such a dominant and very talented and uh, lengthy featherweight in Calvin Qatar. 
So that'll conclude my recaps for both UFC 251 and UFC Fight Night Qatar vs. Ige. Thank you so much for listening, and now let's get into some boxing topics. I'll go ahead and start with the fight that was on July 9th between Carlos Takam and Jerry Forrest. Carlos Takam, the veteran, ended up getting the win by unanimous decision after 10 rounds over the younger Jerry Forrest. And I thought that Takam had a really good start to the fight. He was really able to find his jab and then come over with his right quite nicely against the slower Jerry Forrest. But as the rounds went on, you could see that Takam was slowing down and that Forrest was starting to speed up and gain some momentum. And I thought some of the later rounds, uh, Jerry Forrest might have won. But that early lead that Takam uh, had on Forrest ended up being too much for him to overcome. And I thought the veteran savvy of Takam, his jabs, his uh, power right, and then how he was able to have great ring generalship in there and really uh, push uh, Jerry Forrest around the ring really allowed him to uh, gain a lead in the earlier rounds. And that's what ended up getting him the decision win. So a good uh, win from a heavyweight in Carlos Takam against a decent fighter in Jerry Forrest and a fighter that he should beat, having only lost to uh, Joseph Parker, Anthony Joshua, Derek Chisora, and Alexander Povetkin, and also uh, Gregory Tony. Uh, prior to that in his career. So Takam only loses to uh, these elite heavyweights, these uh, champions, and a fighter like Jerry Forrest is not going to be quite on his level. And although Forrest did have some good rounds in those uh, later rounds, he wasn't able to quite do enough to get the win. And I got to give a lot of credit to Takam. Even though he's quite old, he's already um, 39 years old. He's still showing he has a lot of fight left in him. And we'll see where both these heavyweights go from here. And one of Takam's main strengths is fighting on the inside. And against Jerry Forrest, he was able to land the more inside shots than Forrest and the more devastating punches that you could see were really... Uh, doing a little bit of damage to Forrest. Although Forrest was very durable in the fight and never seemed like he was going to be too hurt. But Takam was the more aggressive fighter, the fighter that pushed the pace, that had more aggression, and that was really coming forward. And uh, Jerry Forrest really had to fight with a lot of defense, and uh, Takam was really the more offensive fighter, the one that was really dictating the pace of the fight. And what made this performance even more impressive from Takam is that perhaps he suffered a fractured uh, right cheekbone and he was really pawing at it in the later rounds. But uh, despite this, he was still able to get the unanimous decision win over Jerry Forrest, even though he might have dropped some of those later rounds. But ultimately, the aggression, the jab of Takam, and his superior inside fighting is really what won him this fight. Takam was the more active fighter in there and he was really setting up his nice overhand right with some nice jabs and that's really some great boxing fundamentals that we saw from this veteran and then you look at the punch stats Takam threw 455 total punches he landed 106 his opponent Jerry Forrest 
through 321 and only landed 70 punches. And Takam landed 30 body shots. Jerry Forrest only landed 10 body shots. So you could see that Takam outlanded Forrest by over 30 punches. And he was the more active fighter in there, throwing more punches as well. So when that happens, you're probably not going to get the decision win. Although I did think that Jerry Forrest came on strong in the later rounds as Carlos Takam was starting to fade. So moving on from that fight and into the next uh, main event on top rank. The main event was supposed to be Jamel Herring taking on Jonathan Okendo. However, that fight ultimately got canceled because Jamel Herring tested positive for the second time for the coronavirus. Herring was supposed to fight earlier on in the month and then that fight got postponed for the new date on July 14th. However, that fight once again was postponed because unfortunately, as I said earlier, he tested positive for the second time for the coronavirus. So hopefully Jamel Herring can make a comeback and we see him back in the ring in the not too distant future. Very unfortunate for Herring that he had not one but two postponements of his uh, scheduled fight. And uh, fortunately for Michaela Mayer and Helen Joseph, they got moved up to the main event. So some history for top rank boxing. It was the first time in the history of top rank on ESPN that a woman's fight headlined the card. And uh, what a great coming out performance it was for Michaela Mayer in a main event slot on ESPN as she absolutely dominated Helen Joseph in route to unanimous decision win after 10 rounds against the overmatched opponent. Although a lot of pundits were saying that this was probably going to be Mayer's toughest test, she definitely showed that she's a very skilled boxer and has one of the best jabs in all of boxing. No matter if you're talking about men or women, Mayer has a very strong jab. And that may come somewhat because she spars a lot with men and doesn't really spar that much with uh, women. So her main trainer, Al Mitchell, is really helping Michaela Meyer reach her full potential. And you look at the punch stats, Meyer threw 538 punches and landed 195 for a 36% connect rate, and she landed 32 shots to the body. Her opponent, Helen Joseph, threw 377 total punches. She only landed 86 for a 23% connect rate, and landed 22 shots to the body of Mayer. So really utter domination from Mayer here. She outlanded her by more than 100 punches, and she had a high connect percentage of 36%. Uh, connect rate. So this shows me that Meyer was not only devastating with her punches, but also very accurate. And give credit to Helen Joseph, who could really take a punch and was trying to be competitive throughout the fight. But it was clear that Mayer had the speed advantage, and she really set up all her shots with her nice jab, really throwing it out there a lot during the fight. And that's what really set up her power right her shots to the body, although I thought she should have gone to the body more to maybe get Helen Joseph out of there before the final bell, 
And something the commentators were talking about is they don't really understand why these rounds are two minutes instead of three minutes. I mean, these women can fight three-minute rounds, and I believe they should be fighting three-minute rounds. I mean, it's only a 10-round fight, two minutes a round, that's only a 20-minute fight. You don't think they can go 30 minutes? I think these women can definitely fight uh, three-minute rounds, so hopefully we see that uh, change in boxing in the future for women's boxing. Because we don't see this in the UFC. Women fight uh, five-minute rounds just like the men do in the UFC. Though men fight five-minute rounds, so do the women. And I think the same should be for boxing. It should be three minutes across the board for men and women. But there's no doubt that Michaela Mayer, a former Olympian, she's American uh, from the Valley in California. She's a very talented fighter. I think she's going to be one of the stars in women's boxing along with Clarissa Shields and Katie Taylor. I think Michaela Mayer is right up there in terms of marketability for being uh, perhaps a future star in the sport of boxing. She's a pretty blonde and she has the boxing fundamentals to back it up. She's really showing me that she has a great jab and uh, she just needs to work the body a bit more in future fights. And Bob Arum said post-fight that Michaela Mayer would indeed get a title shot in her next fight. So the future is really bright for Mayer and she showed me great boxing fundamentals and she's definitely a boxer I'm going to want to keep an eye on in future fights. And for Helen Joseph, uh, it was a great opportunity for her in the main event on ESPN. Joseph overcame insurmountable odds. She's an orphan from Nigeria, and uh, she's still a professional fighter, still fighting, uh, you know, to make a living. And I got to give a lot of credit to Helen Joseph for getting in there and showing herself to be a very tough fighter, a fighter that's uh, worthy of an opponent like May Michaela Mayer. However, Mayer just had too much class for her. Her jab was too accurate, and she ended up uh, coasting to a unanimous decision win. She dominated. I believe she won every round against Helen Joseph. So Mayer's uh, main event slot on ESPN really couldn't have gone any better. And uh, the unfortunately, the opportunity that was supposed to be for Jamel Herring and Jonathan Okendo went to Michaela Mayer and Helen Joseph. But Mayer put on an absolute virtuoso performance, and I can't wait to see her fight again. And guess what, boxing fans? Not only one main event was called off between Jamal Herring and Jonathan Okendo, another main event was called off between Miguel Mariaga and Mark John Yap. Miguel Mariaga ended up making weight. The catchweight limit was for 128 pounds. However, his opponent, Mark John Yap, unfortunately did not make weight as he weighed in at 136.7 pounds so nearly nine pounds over the agreed weight limit uh, it's not really a good look for yap and unfortunately for mariaga he had his fight postponed once again he was originally scheduled to fight Shakur stevenson but that fight got postponed because of the pandemic and then he was scheduled to fight yap however this time the fight was postponed because his opponent did not make weight so that means the main event for that card uh, this past Thursday was between Felix Verdejo and his overmatched opponent, Will Madeira. It only took Felix Verdejo one round to dispose of Will Madeira. He was able to use his very powerful jab to set up some devastating uppercuts 
that really affected the equilibrium of Madeira and Madeira ended up touching the canvas at the end of the first round and the referee was counting but he ended up waving the fight off as he was seeing that Madeira was not in his right mind. And for Felix Verdejo, it's the type of statement win that he absolutely needed if he wants to get those big fights in the future. And Madeira only has one professional loss, and that came back in March of 2018 to Antonio Lozado Jr. by TKO in the 10th round. But since that loss, he's coming off uh, four straight wins, uh, KO win over Yardley Armenta Cruz, two unanimous decision wins over Brian Vasquez and Manuel Ray Rojas, and then most recently a first round uh, TKO win over Will Madera in the main event slot on ESPN this past Thursday on July 16th. And Felix Verdejo post-fight, he called out Vasily Lomachenko because he said he wants to get his revenge for his loss to Lomachenko when they were amateurs fighting in the Olympics. So we'll see if Verdejo versus Lomachenko does indeed get made, but there's a lot of talented fighters in that division. Uh, we'll see who uh, Verdejo fights next, but this was an absolutely stunning performance from him against an overmatched opponent in Will Madera. He was really able to use his jab very effectively. And his uppercuts were absolutely devastating. And he looks like he can generate a lot of power for being uh, such a small fighter. Fighting at, I believe, 135 pounds. So we'll see who Verdejo gets next. But this was the type of performance he absolutely needed. And it got upgraded to the main event slot after Miguel Mariaga's fight was unfortunately called off because Mark John Yap could not make weight. But Verdejo took full advantage of his main event slot, just as Michaela Mayer took full advantage of her main event slot. So two very impressive performances from Michaela Mayer and Felix Verdejo, and I'm definitely excited to see where both these fighters go in the future. And I think the change in trainer for Felix Verdejo has really helped him Felix Verdejo is now being trained by Ismail Salas, and Salas previously worked wonders for Jorge Linares, really resurrecting his career, and it looks like he's going to be able to do the same thing for Felix Verdejo. So I can't wait to see Verdejo back in the ring, and he shouldn't need too much of a layoff after only going run one round and getting the knockout win over Will Madera. Now moving on to some boxing previews on July 18th from Madeburg, Germany on ESPN+. Plus. In the main event, we have Ajit Kabayel versus Evangelos Lazardis, 10 rounds, heavyweights. I'm not really sure who those fighters are, but there is a fight coming up this Saturday on July 18th if you're interested uh, early on in the day uh, from Germany. And then on July 21st from Las Vegas, coming up this Tuesday, in the main event, we have Oscar Valdez versus Jason Velez. I'm going to go ahead and pick Oscar Valdez to get the win here. I just think he's the more experienced fighter. And he's one of the most exciting fighters in all of boxing. Really putting on very exciting fights. If you're not familiar with Oscar Valdez, he loves to come forward and push the pace. And really make it more of a brawl than necessarily a boxing match. So we'll see what happens against Jason Velez, but I like Oscar Valdez in that fight. And then in the co-main event, we have Edgar Berlanga versus Eric Moon. Berlanga is undefeated, 
and he is 13 and 0 with 13 first round KO finishes. That is absolutely incredible. 13 first round finishes in his first 13 fights. We'll see if he can get another first round finish against his opponent in uh, Eric Moon. And then in the third fight, we have Kim Clavel versus Natalie Gonzalez. Kim Clavel won the Pat Tillman Award for Service at the ESPYs because she was on the front lines fighting the coronavirus pandemic while her boxing career was briefly put on hold. So we'll see if Clavel can indeed get the win there. And then don't forget, we also have Isaac Dogbo versus Chris Avalos, eight rounds featherweights. Dogbo is, of course, the former champion that lost to Emmanuel Navarrete. Uh, so we'll see if he can indeed get back on the winning track against Chris Avalos. I do like Dogbo, Dogbo in that fight. I think he's a very uh, powerful little fighter, and he should be able to get the win over Avalos. So a pretty stacked card there on Tuesday coming up uh, July 21st. Hopefully none of those fights get canceled because the fighters don't make weight or because of the coronavirus pandemic. And then on July 24th from Indio, California, in the main event, we have Virgil Ortiz versus Samuel Vargas. Ortiz is one of the best young boxers in all of uh, the sport. He's a very powerful fighter and he's still very young. Ortiz is only 22 years old and he's 15 and 0 with 15 wins by knockout. You can't really do much better than that. And he's been fighters in the past like Brad Solomon, Antonio Orozco, and Mauricio Herrera. His uh, opponent for this fight will be Samuel Vargas. Let's look at uh, Vargas's record. He's fought opponents like Luis. Cole Azo that he lost to by split decision and then he lost to Amir Khan by unanimous decision so he's a pretty decent fighter he's also fought Danny Garcia but he lost to him by TKO in the seventh round and he also fought Errol Spence Jr. and lost to him by TKO in the fourth round so this guy um, Samuel Vargas has definitely been in there with some of the best fighters in boxing and Danny Garcia and also Errol Spence Jr. So his uh, opponent in Virgil Ortiz Jr. is definitely going to be another challenge for him. And I'm going to go ahead and pick Ortiz Jr. to get the knockout win here over Vargas. I just think he's a very gifted fighter with uh, great boxing skills and also decent power. And that's why he has uh, so many knockouts in his career. Every time he goes out, he's getting a knockout. And I expect nothing less against the very talented 22-year-old Virgil Ortiz Jr. And then in the co-main event, we have Hector Tenhara versus Mercito Gesta, 10 rounds lightweights. And then we also have Shane Mosley Jr. versus Jeremy Ramos, 8 rounds middleweights. And that fight will be coming up this uh, Friday on July 24th. So you're going to want to tune into that to see one of the best young fighters in all of boxing in Virgil Ortiz Jr. So don't forget on July 21st we have Oscar Valdez versus Jason Velez in the main event and then on July 24th we have Virgil Ortiz Jr. versus Samuel Vargas in the main event. So I can't wait for those uh, two boxing cards and that will conclude my boxing previews. Now let's move back into the UFC.
Coming up on this Saturday on July 18th, we have UFC Fight Night Figueredo vs. Benavides 2 from Yas Island in Abu Dhabi. The prelims start on ESPN and ESPN Plus at 2 p.m. Pacific Time. The main card is on ESPN Plus at 5 p.m. Pacific Time. And in the co-main event, we have Jack Hermanson, a fighter from Norway, taking on Kelvin Gastelum, an American fighter. Uh, Gastelum is 28 years old. He's 186 pounds. He has a 71.5 inch reach and he stands at 5 foot 9. His opponent, Jack Hermanson, is 32 years old. He stands at 6 foot 1. He weighs in at 186 pounds as well. He has a significant reach advantage on Gastelum, having a 77.5 inch reach. And uh, I believe that Hermanson should have the edge in this fight. The odds are pretty much the same for these two fighters. Uh, Hermanson is a pick him basically at minus 110, and Gastelum is also basically a pick him at minus 110. So the odds makers really don't know who to pick in terms of a winner or who to make the favorite. So this should be a very close and competitive fight between two fighters that are really looking for a win to perhaps challenge Israel Adesanya at 185 pounds for his middleweight title. Hermanson comes in with a 4-inch height advantage. He's 6'1". His opponent Gastelum is 5'9". And a 6-inch reach advantage. Hermanson has a 77.5-inch reach, Gastelum only a 71.5-inch reach, and besides his height and reach advantages, Hermanson is also the superior wrestler, and I think if he makes this a grappling match, he'll clearly have the advantage over Gastelum on the mat, but if this stays a striking battle, I believe that Gastelum might have the slight advantage in striking. So, if Hermanson can dictate the pace and make this a grappling match, I believe he's able to grind out a decision win over Gastelum. And looking at Hermanson's record, he's beaten David Branch by uh, submission, and that was back on March of 2019. So, an impressive first round submission for Hermanson. And that's one of the things that Hermanson does well. He takes guys down and then he's able to submit them. And then he also uh, got a unanimous decision win over the tough Jacare Souza. And then he's coming off actually a KO loss to uh, Jared Cannonier. And that was in the second round. And that was back in. September of 2019. So even though Hermanson's coming off a loss to Jared Kinnanier, I still like him in this matchup against Kelvin Gastelum. I think he's got the speed advantage, the strength advantage, the wrestling advantage, and Gastelum might have uh, the striking advantage. But I think that Hermanson has a better stamina, and that fight against 
uh, Israel Adesanya for the title really seemed to take a lot out of Kelvin Gastelum. He hasn't looked like the same fighter since that absolutely brutal fight against Israel Adesanya, and that showed in his split decision loss to Darren Till. Uh, Till was the taller fighter in there and was able to really use his reach and uh, height advantages in there against the shorter Gastelum, and I think that Hermanson will be able to employ similar tactics on Kelvin Gastelum, not only on the feet, but obviously also on the mat, if he is indeed able to take him down. And before uh, losing to Israel Adesanya, Gastelum also beat Jacare Souza by split decision and knocked out Michael Bisping. So we'll see who wins this fight. It's basically a pick and fight, but give me uh, Jack Hermanson here to get the win. I'm going to say a split decision win for Hermanson. I think it's going to be a close back and forth fight. But the takedowns of Hermanson and his speed advantage should be able to secure the win in a pretty uh, competitive fight in the middleweight division. And then moving on to the main event, we have a flyweight main event title fight between Devinson Figueiredo, a Brazilian fighter, against Josef Benavides, an American fighter. Devinson Figueiredo is 32 years old. He stands at 5'5". He made weight for this fight at 125 pounds. He has a 68-inch reach. His opponent, Josef Benavides, is 35 years old. He stands at 5'4". He also made weight at 125 pounds, and he has a 65-inch reach. Obviously, both these fighters fought previously, and Figueiredo ended up beating Benavides by KO, TKO in the second round after a violent head clash, and then he was able to finish Benavides with some nice punches. And before that, he beat Tim Elliott, and uh, he also beat Alexandre Pantoja. So clearly, Devinson Figueroa is one of the best flyweights in the UFC, if not the best. I do like him once again to beat Josef Benavides here. Unfortunately, their first fight was supposed to be for the title, but Figueroa came in about two pounds overweight, so that fight was not the official flyweight title fight. However, for their rematch, both fighters were able to make weight. And in their first fight, I thought that Figueroa was the bigger fighter in there, the more powerful fighter, and he was really able to manhandle the smaller Benavides, even though they... Uh, fight in the same weight class. I just think that Figueroa has the size and the strength advantage against Benavides. And looking at their fight stats from their first fight, Benavides landed 46 total strikes and Figueroa landed 25 total strikes and he was able to get a takedown on Benavides and had 45 seconds of ground control time. So even though Benavides outstruck Figueroa in their first fight, Clearly the more powerful striker is indeed Figueroa and um, I believe that the odds show this as Figueroa is a favorite at minus 240 and Benavides comes in as the underdog at plus 200. I'd be very surprised if Benavides is able to overcome the strength and the size advantages that Figueroa inherently has. He's a very big flyweight and I can understand that he might struggle to make weight sometimes as was the case in their previous fight that unfortunately was not for the title. However, as I said, both fighters made weight for their rematch and I like Figueroa to get the win here. 
I'm going to go ahead and say a fourth round TKO win for Figueroa over Benavides. I just don't think that Benavides will be able to stick with Figueroa over the course of five rounds. And I like Figueroa to get the finish in this fight and indeed capture the flyweight title in emphatic fashion. So tune in to UFC Fight Night Figueroa vs. Benavides 2 coming up this Saturday on July 18th. My picks are Devinson Figueroa by knockout and Jack Hermanson by split decision. Can't wait to check out these fights. Thank you so much for listening to episode number 16 of Combat Bets. That will conclude my coverage for this episode. And remember, Kobe forever, Mamba forever, and please mask up and stay safe out there and enjoy this weekend's fights and uh, the future boxing cards that are also coming up. Thank you, and this will conclude episode number 16 of Combat Bets on the Believe Network. I'm your host, Jason Barron, signing off. Until next time, thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.